All right. Good morning, everyone. If you can, if somebody can just type in the chat to let me know if you can hear me and see me, that would be great. Okay. I think you guys can hear me because I just got something that says good here. All right. So, uh, obviously, the format this morning is a little bit different. Um, what I'm going to do, uh, just to start us off, is uh, pray, and then we'll I'll introduce the topic uh, of the video today from Jim Neuheiser. Um, it's on basics of biblical counseling principles, which um, essentially will uh, go through a couple of different techniques um, and actually more disclaimers than anything in regards to uh, biblical counseling. So he starts with the foundations. What are some uh, underlying assumptions, presuppositions of biblical counseling? Um, and then from there, he moves on to talking about the goal of biblical counseling. And then ultimately, uh, he, he starts talking about what he calls the seven eyes of biblical counseling. Um, and today we'll only go through the first eye, which is involvement. Um, so let me, let me just start us off in prayer. Um, and then I'll go ahead and start the video. Uh, during the video, if you guys want to go ahead and submit your questions, I'll be monitoring that. I'll kind of copy and paste those questions uh, onto a spreadsheet or a workbook. And then from there, I'll start answering those questions, kind of interacting with you all after the video. And then I also have some questions that I want to uh, kind of bring up and get some interaction again through that chat um, will work best. Let me just start us off in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, the technology that uh, allows us to be able to uh, virtually uh, interact today. Um, thank you that um, during a time like this that we can still uh, listen to um, your word um, and be able to talk about things that glorify you. We understand that uh, as a church that we're not gathering this morning, and yet at the same time we're able to fellowship uh, in a way that's honoring to you uh, through the use of technology. Uh, you know, uh, during the Spanish influenza, when churches had to close, they didn't have the capability of doing this. And so we understand that we are blessed and uh, we just thank you for that. I pray that uh, you continue to comfort uh, all the people that are sick, uh, as well as the ramifications of what is happening because of the COVID virus with people losing jobs, people unable to go to work uh, during this time and not being able to buy food because others are, are buying uh, hoarding the food. And I just pray that you just help us to continue to not be anxious, continue to be a light. Um, I pray that this discussion of counseling is fruitful, especially in light of the fact that there are those out there who are anxious or fearful, who are hurting, and that we'll be able to apply these principles of counseling uh, to those individuals, to be able to minister the word personally to individuals who are hurting. Lord, I just pray that you'll just bless our time today. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and turn off my video, and then I'll be starting the video um, with Jim Neuheiser. If you guys are unable to see it, let me know on the chat. Otherwise, I'm going to assume that you're able to see it. We're going to talk about uh, basic principles, general principles of biblical counseling. Uh, this morning we talked about uh, why we cannot rely upon psychology to help people with their problems. We talked about the various approaches different Christians have taken to counseling and talked about how our belief in the sufficiency of the Word of God to help people with their spiritual problems 
puts us into the biblical or neuthetic counseling movement. And as we think about how to do counseling, our assumptions are that the Bible itself is sufficient as our textbook for counseling, that the goal of our counseling is change in conformity with God's revealed will, not necessarily the desires of the counselee. This change can only take place by the power of the Lord, by His Spirit working in us and in the counselee. And that the qualification for being a counselor is personal holiness, a knowledge of the Word of God, and gifting by God's Spirit. Now, we're going to go through um, seven eyes of biblical counseling. This is a, a structure, kind of a systematic overview. Uh, they are in a logical order in, in terms of as we go through these seven eyes. It will follow generally the order in which you're doing counseling, but it's not like in a session, well, now I'm doing this eye and then I'll move on to the next one. There, there's overlap between them. This is a framework that I did not invent. I think uh, Jay Adams had a lot to do with in the early days. Uh, George Scipione, Wayne Mack. Wayne actually divides the first eye into two eyes. So he has eight eyes, but his eight are the same as our seven, and you could make nine or eleven or six and uh, cover a lot of the same ground. But it's a helpful way to um, remember, I guess, and... We'll talk about these in general, and then as we go on, we'll talk about applying them in particular cases and and situations. Uh, The first I is involvement. Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Uh, the name of our organization has the word discipleship in it. Um, it's shepherding people. It's caring for people. It's helping them to be become disciples of Christ. Uh, we're not the uh, man in the tie sitting behind the desk with the patient on the couch. Is we're aloof or distant. Uh, we care very deeply. Paul describes his relationship with the Corinthians, that out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not so you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have, especially for you. Um, One thing you're going to learn, and you probably already know this, is counseling is very draining. I think a couple hours of counseling is more draining even than a couple of hours of teaching or preaching, because when you care about people, and, and you're not just imparting information, but you're pouring your very life into that person. And, you know, this is how Paul describes his own ministry. You know, in First Thessalonians, he talks about like a, a nursing mother, we cared for you, like a father cares for his children. Uh, so we're, we're really involved and in, 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 uh, not limited to the hour of the session uh, where we want to be humble and brotherly. That's what I was referring to. We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. 
Uh, we know that we too are sinners. Each one of us knows what it is to be struggling with sin, to be caught in a sin, to need help. Uh, think of our Lord Jesus himself. The ultimate example of involvement is he became one of us. God the Son made flesh and became involved in our predicament. Uh, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, he wept over the unbelief of Jerusalem. He, he wasn't just a machine spouting out truth, but he, he, he came as a, a person caring very deeply. Um, as we deal with the counselee, there are several things we need to keep in mind. Um, we, we want to treat the counselee with respect. Uh, some ways this comes into play is that 1 Corinthians 13 says, love hopes all things, love believes all things. And uh, you can't, I mean, sometimes you may wonder if you're being told the truth. Sometimes uh, you may be drawing some tentative conclusions, but you, you're responsible biblically to assume the best until proven otherwise. Uh, you need to be honest with your counselee. One thing we do when people come in here to IBCD is we have them sign a form that explains what our counseling is about. And we explain we are not state certified. We are not professional psychotherapists. We are simply giving you pastoral counseling. Uh, we, you need to be honest about your agenda. Um, your agenda being to bring from the Word of God whatever is appropriate not necessarily what the counselee wants you to do, wants to hear. Uh, you admit you're a fellow sinner. And uh, also not to claim to be or try to appear to be more qualified than you are. It's much better to admit, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to have to ask somebody else about that. That's a really tough one. Or maybe I can uh, get somebody else to come in and help us because this is a bit beyond me. Uh, something they talk about in the Peacemaker material, which we're going to be covering later, they use the concept of getting passport. Uh, they use the, the word passport like when you travel to get into a country, you need a passport and sometimes a visa to cross a border to be welcomed. And often with the counselee, uh, you'll sense some resistance. And, and part of getting involved is seeking to establish a relationship with the counselee that shows that you care and hopefully is one is giving them a desire to open themselves up to you. Uh, oftentimes we will have situations where you have a couple come in and one is really, really with the program and the other one doesn't quite want to be there. Um, and so what you want to do in the beginning is you're trying to win the confidence of your counselee or counselees. And sometimes that may appear to some people like you're not getting right to the point and you're not on subject, but sometimes it's establishing a relationship with somebody and you know, sharing common interests and showing that you're interested in them that can lead to you having the opportunity to really speak to uh, their soul. I had a situation, for example, where... Um, couple comes in and the wife is a believer and the husband admits he's not a Christian. 
and he's kind of reluctant to be there. He's probably a little intimidated by feeling like he's on, uh, not on his home turf where his wife has brought him into a pastor, a biblical counselor. And I find out that he and I have some common interest in sports, and he actually likes sports memorabilia. And so I spend a few minutes talking to him about that. And, you know, I'm not making up my interest. I think it's cool, the stuff that he has. Now, the wife even asked me, well, why are you wasting our time? We've got an hour, and you spent five minutes talking about that. Well, I'm doing it because I'm wanting to build some kind of relationship with your husband. Um, you, You... want to treat your counseling with respect and taking their problems seriously. One way to do this is also to be a good listener. Uh, There's a lot in the Proverbs about that. Uh, One verse we may quote later from chapter 20 is that sometimes the the thoughts of a man's mind are like a deep well, and it's a man of understanding who can draw it out. Uh, Early in a session, uh, you may listen for quite a while before you have a lot to say. Hopefully also... Your life, your presence will exhibit the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You who are spiritual, and they can see that you love them. They can see in you the peace of Christ. Uh, If they are hard to deal with, maybe they will see the fruit of self-control, which often you need when you're counseling with some difficult counselees. Galatians 6 also says, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Um, I've thought about that verse a lot in terms of what kind of temptations can you fall into. And I'm not certain. I know all the examples that Paul may have been thinking about. But when you're confronting sin, uh, there can be temptations to sin. Uh, one is, sometimes if you're confronting sin against you, you can be tempted to be angry and bitter and very aggressive and vengeful. And so you need self-control. And when we talk about the peacemaker material, one of the most difficult problems in, in resolving conflict is the person who is going to the, the one who's wronged him or her, uh, you're angry and you're upset and you're kind of venting rather than the focus being on restoring them. Uh, another way, of course, that is uh, a, a really grave danger is in counseling people of the opposite sex, uh, there have been significant problems. And I I know of several cases in which pastors or male counselors have become involved, either far too involved emotionally, and sadly sometimes even physically. And and you can understand how this happens. Um, Oftentimes the the woman comes in, her husband doesn't understand her, her husband doesn't listen to her, and here's a guy who will listen for an hour. <laughs> her husband may not have sat down and listened to an hour in a long, of her talking in a long time. And, and he cares and he has compassion. And so she can be tempted to look at him in, in an inappropriate way. And, and likewise for him, his wife knows him as he really is, not in this idealized role as counselor. And so here's somebody who really appreciates him. He wants to be needed. Maybe his wife seems pretty independent. Here's someone who thinks he's great. And uh, I, the, one of the first thing I think I had published was 14, 15, 16 years ago. Uh, it was called The Tenderness Trap. It was published in the Journal of Biblical Counseling. There's a copy in your notebook. And it, it was written after um, a 
a friend of mine had been caught uh, touching female counselees, multiple female counselees inappropriately, in what was called gross pastoral misconduct. It was just heartbreaking to me. And in my view, the, I mean, the way you resolve these problems, first and foremost, you train women to counsel women. I'm glad there are ladies here, and you have interest in counseling ladies. That Titus 2 talks about how older women should uh, advise, counsel, teach younger women. And I'm so glad you have a burden for that. And I would much rather women do that. And you know, even in our counseling center here, what we were looking to have one or two more really solid ladies, preferably in excellent marriages, who can take uh, these cases on. That's actually something exciting. Like somebody mentioned, you're finishing the uh, child training years. You're looking ahead to an empty nest. And for some ladies, this could be a, an important ministry for them uh, when that nest empties. Um, another precaution is that, you know, in the cases where a man does need to be involved, and for example, pastors Shepherds, sometimes, you know, women, sheep need to be shepherded too. But to have somebody else there present in the room with you, ideally a woman, ideally that woman being one's wife, but if not somebody else. And I had to learn this really through experience. When I first started uh, pastoral counseling here, when our church started 20 years ago, um, I had an office that had kind of windows. We we were renting a building, but we had an office where it was in a, a little strip mall, and we had it was windows all over the place. And my office was there, and people walking by all the time. And I had been told, you know, if you're going to counsel women, you should have a window in the door. And so women would come in, and there might have been somebody in the next office. People would be walking by, but I would be in there. But I sensed that there was still a level of tension in that situation that made me feel very uneasy. And that even if, I mean, obviously, you, nothing physical should happen if you're in a wall, I mean, walls of windows and people can look in. But there can be emotional connections and dependencies that take place. And I can tell you, when your wife is sitting in the room, the atmosphere completely changes. And so after a little bit of that, and, you know, just... I remember in a couple of cases where, in one case, a woman is in there. Again, I'm in my early 30s. She's in her mid-20s. And she's married to a guy who's a loser. And she's crying. says, I married the wrong man. And she's crying. And I'm sitting. And I'm not getting out from behind that desk. <laughs> but she's crying and weeping. And she needs somebody to put her, their arm around her and to hug her, to encourage her. Because she was right. She did marry the wrong man. I couldn't argue about that, but now she had biblically to stay married. But there was just an emotional cry that it would have been inappropriate for me to be the person to fill in and meet that need because of what was going on in her marriage. And there's another case as well where a woman had been abandoned by her husband, and she's in my office, she's just weeping and weeping. Actually, it was a case where the husband and she were together, and he finally said, you know, I really enjoy my girlfriend more than you, and he walked out, and there she is weeping. I called, got a, the lady in the church who lived closest, get over here fast. <laughs> it's, this lady needs a hug, but again, I'm, I'm staying behind my desk. Well, now I just, you know, for more than 15 years, if I'm going to counsel a lady, 
and sometimes it's over the phone. I have a policy that my wife or somebody else is going to be around kind of hearing my end of the conversation. I'm going to talk to my wife about what's going on. If I email interaction, my wife is copied on any email between myself and a lady is a protection of our marriage because I've seen too many cases, uh, rare tragic cases where adultery or touching takes place, but even the emotional connections that can take place are very dangerous. And I feel perfectly safe with my wife in the room. So we need to take precautions. Um, Another thing I think we need to be careful of in falling into their sin is, I I guess, sin-loving company. We could be tempted along the same lines as their sin. They're angry, they're bitter, joining with them in gossip. Um, Talked about women counseling women. Um, also, I do not believe that women should counsel men. Uh, the reason being that Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And counseling is the ministry of the word. It's teaching, it's admonishing, it's authoritative ministry of the word. Now, when my wife and I sit together and we share with a couple, it's kind of a Priscilla Aquila thing maybe, and we can both share together with them with me taking the leadership in the situation. But I don't think it's appropriate for a lady to be in an authoritative, instructive counseling position with a man. Um, Another danger is you do not want to become an emotional crutch to a counselee. I have a verse here that actually I have J.C. Ryle to thank for discovering this verse, and I've used it in several contexts. In Second Chronicles 24.2, it says, Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. What's the implication? As soon as Jehoiada dies, then Joash isn't doing what's right anymore, and that Joash is trust and loyalty was not to the Lord himself, but to this priest guy who was mentoring him. And, and we don't want people to make us their guru. Now, in the short term, it can be flattering. Uh, I think some people are drawn to counseling because we want to help people. And when people say they're being helped and they say I, they, they need us, there's a certain amount of affirmation that can take place. But the problem is you get counselees who want to move in with you and take vacations with you, and it's not right. It's not good for your life and for your family, but it's also not good for them. Your objective is to make them dependent upon the Lord and not on you. I think there was a movie made several years ago about some guy that is chasing around his shrink and won't let the shrink do anything. That really does happen. Um, And there's a a fine line that certainly pastorally, when our sheep are hurting, I want them to be able to call me any time, day or night, that I can point them to the Lord and to help them. But there are some people you're going to run into, they want to be your best friend. They want exclusivity even in that friendship. They want access constantly. And you're not, one is you just don't have the time to do that for that many people. But the other is, They're becoming dependent upon you and not Christ. So as you get involved, be careful not to get involved to the extent they're dependent upon you. 
Another aspect of involvement is to pray with and for your counselee. We will open and close each counseling session in prayer. Uh, We pray, you know, I will pray during the week for uh, my counselees on Monday when I do our IBCD counseling. And my life consists of Monday I'll counsel typically four cases plus a class or two I'm teaching. Uh, And I will, during that day, usually when I'm jogging, I'll think about my cases and I'll pray uh, for those cases and for those people in particular, hopefully also during the week. We often have uh, observers in our counseling, and I instruct the observers, part of your job when you're observing is to pray for uh, the counselee, um, you know, praying that the Lord will help you. I mean, we're, we're dependent upon God. If, if he doesn't help us, we're going to fall all over ourselves and not know what to say. If, if he doesn't work in the heart of the counselee, uh, they're not going to change. They're not going to understand We are desperately in need of God's help. And again, it's not like you do this in the first session in the beginning and you pray and you don't pray anymore. This is something that's constant. And then another aspect of involvement, which actually, I think this is one where Dr. Mack creates a second eye, which he calls inspiration, but it's still in my involvement eye, is early on you want to build hope in your counselee. Uh, a large percentage of counselees come in almost in despair. Uh, I don't know how many times I've seen on the intake form where they say, you're our last resort. We've tried everything else. And maybe that's what it does take to come to biblical counseling, to sit in front of a stranger you've never seen before. Um, and without hope, people won't even try. Uh, Proverbs 17.22, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. And so we want to, very important, to build hope. Um, Some verses there, along with many others, 1 Corinthians 10.13, a very important, you know, in your little counseling Bible you're trying to make bigger, this is this one, Galatians 6.1, you ought to have right in the beginning. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. How does that give hope to the counselee? We say that your problem is not unique. There are many others who have had the same problem and have received help from God. And God has promised, because He is faithful, that He knows what you can handle. And even though right now you may feel overwhelmed and you may think this is, the temptation is more than you can bear or this trial is more than you can endure, that God who knows you perfectly, God who made you, is sovereign. And He will not give you something beyond what you're able, that you can as you turn to Him, He will provide you a way of escape from sin. Now I think the way of escape isn't necessarily to get out of the trial immediately. It isn't necessarily that it becomes easy but that God has promised that as you turn to Him, you can find peace, you can have joy, you can, you can escape what seems to have ensnared you. And it's based upon His promise, not mine. <clears throat> Likewise, uh, I love Philippians 1.6. I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. 
If you're a believer, God has already begun a work in you. And, and it's not up to you alone at all that He who began this work is now working in you to sanctify you, to conform you to Christ. And He's going to keep at it until you die or until He returns. The Lord has compassion for you. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, in, in Bill says in 1 Timothy 1 that this is Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Our hope isn't, our hope isn't that your wife's going to come back, the wife who left you. Our, our hope isn't that though you're single and lonely, God's going to provide you a husband. Our hope isn't even that your child who is wayward is going to be a missionary someday and is going to serve God. Nothing in the Bible gives me that kind of promise. My hope is that I am in Christ and that He is my reward. A lot of times counselees are coming in longing for a hope that we can't exactly promise them. I can say, God is able to restore your marriage. That's a hope I can give. I can say, I've seen God do this before, but I can't prophesy that God will because the other party may reject everything in the Bible and they may be wayward. But then I can tell you, even if that happens that God will be with you, and God will sustain you. That's the hope I can give. Um, it's a hope, you know, not living by sight, but by faith. And when Hebrews talks about faith as you know, the assurance of things, hope for the conviction of things, nil, amillennial, postmillennial, panmillennial. Um, but the hope the Bible gives us is that because God has chosen us from before the foundation of the world, has saved us in time by renewing us by His Spirit, and is continuing to work to sanctify us. One day Christ is coming again, and every tear will be wiped away, and we will be conformed to His image, and we will never sin again. And these bodies which are wretched and falling apart will be conformed to the glorious image of His body. That is our ultimate hope. And that we can be assured of. And, of course, there are many other examples in Scripture that are genuine promises. But we need to be very careful not to promise what God hasn't promised. Um, it can damage the Lord's reputation inappropriately. Again, you can't say, okay, I know God has a husband for you. Because some people stay single. I know women who never imagined they'd be single who are pushing 50 and never got married. But I can say that whatever goes, whatever happens in your life, God will be with you and God has a purpose in it in which you can be fulfilled, in which he will be glorified. Uh, to build hope, um, things that we will do, and we'll see that as we go through particular cases, is look at examples in the Bible. Uh, one in Genesis I love and I use a lot, and you'll see me use it a few times this week, is the example of Joseph, the son of Jacob. And he goes through horrible things. He's abused, he's falsely accused, he's imprisoned. But as he continues to look to the Lord and the Lord is with him, he endures. Um, 
you can encourage a person by past cases, past examples you've seen of God working in your life and in the lives of others. Uh, I'm thankful to be able to tell couples who are in the midst of conflict and, uh, you know, there's been unfaithfulness, for example, that I can tell them that I've seen God work to bring repentance to the guilty party and forgiveness to the broken, innocent party and to restore and renew a marriage that it's better than it was before the unfaithfulness happened. Now, I can't say I'm confident this will happen because I don't have the power to make it happen, but I can say God is able and I've seen God do it. Uh, something else I think that's good to do to build hope is to get your counselee to recall God's past faithfulness. That you've been unemployed before, you've had financial troubles before, you've not known where the rent was coming from in the past. You, you know, tell me, you know, that's where you're asking questions. Tell me about your life. And you recall, God has delivered you in the past and we can hope that he will deliver you yet again. He has shown himself to be faithful to you. Um, with depressed people, um, people diagnosed bipolar even, that as you hear their history, one thing that will typically come up is there are seasons where they are depressed and then there are seasons where they're okay. And to give thanks, and they should remember that even though you've been down like this in the past and you felt there was no hope, that there have been several times in your life already where that difficult season has ended and that God has restored your hope and has given you encouragement. And so remember God's past faithfulness. This is a lot of what happens in the Bible, in the Psalms, right? You know, when they're in captivity or when times are difficult, they recall the Exodus. They recall God's great works and his past faithfulness. And even David as an individual recall the good things that God has done in the past. And he's saying, revive your work again in our day. Do again what you've done in the past. Uh, on a practical level, um, you can give manageable homework assignments to build hope. Um, to see, and, and sometimes, and it's challenging strategically, normally when you're counseling somebody, you go after the really big problem. But sometimes, if they can solve a smaller problem and see how the Bible can help them with that, it will give them hope about the bigger problem. I had a guy come in one time and he was having a huge conflict with his wife that was very involved and messy. He was also involved in a conflict with his parents, which seemed a lot simpler. And so the assignment the first week was to go seek forgiveness of his parents in a biblical way and seek restoration with them using the peacemaker material we're going to cover in a little while. And it worked quickly and well. And that gave him hope to see how the Bible works, that in the much more involved, complex relationship with his wife, with a lot of bitterness and things from the past, that there was hope that God could work in that situation as well. So that's involvement, or involvement and inspiration, if you prefer, the way Wayne Mack breaks it down. Cool. All right. Well, um, we had some questions and interaction in the uh in the comments and so i'm going to address those first uh feel free to add your own comments or additional questions uh in response to this as well so allison had asked um that he made a comment or he made a comment that women should not counsel men uh there is however a clear distinction between that and sharing the gospel with them right 
And then uh, I believe Nika stated, I think sharing the gospel is different from counseling, though I believe ideally it wouldn't be sharing with men or be men sharing with men, women sharing with women. And then uh, Mark stated, this is a nuance, but in one section early on, Neuheiser defined the goal of his ministry as, is to bring pastoral counseling. How does that fit with non-elder, shepherd, pastors, women counseling women? Um, and so I think there's two things as we consider the uh, the idea of a, a woman sharing with a man or counseling a man and a man counseling a woman is. All right. Um, so I'm just going to start talking. Uh, we can view the video again uh, if needed because you only have another 10 minutes here. Uh, so the question that was asked by Allison was uh, specifically in regards to, to the statement, um, whether or not women should counsel men. And Jim Neuheiser stated specifically, no. Um, and, and so Allison was asking, okay, what's the clear, is, is there a clear distinction between that women counseling men and sharing the gospel? And so I think, uh, and I mentioned this a little earlier, I don't know if it got captured, but there's two things that we need to consider when a woman counsels a man, and that's whether or not it violates first Timothy two twelve. And if it's wise and avoids temptation. And so a lot of the times, uh, and, and that temptation, that, that avoiding temptation also includes just, uh, certain men stumbling because, uh, a woman is in a, you know, quote unquote authoritative position over them, whatever it is. There, there's a lot there that, um, that, that complicates the picture. And so, um, there's actually differing opinions on this, even within the biblical counseling field. Um, but uh, I think that there there are times when women can counsel men. And that, for example, is when a husband and a wife is doing a team counseling session. Jim Neuheiser even mentions this, where there's going to be insight from from the, the wife of the counselor uh, as she gives input into this person's life, uh, the counselee's life. It also includes um, sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel is not... There's nothing in scripture that says women should not share the gospel with men. Um, and in fact, the, it's without any sort of uh, conditions. It says that we are to make disciples um, to share the gospel. And uh, that also includes just simply when two people are talking, right? If a, a man is talking with a woman and, or a woman talking with a man, vice versa. And uh, the the man is talking about what's going on in his life. The The woman can either give advice can give input in a biblical manner or an unbiblical manner. We're always counseling. We're always speaking uh, into each other's lives. And so in that sense, there's going to be biblical counsel or unbiblical counsel. The When it comes to what I think is should be avoided is specifically uh, pastoral counsel, which doesn't mean a pastor. It does mean it's an intensive care. Um, or one-on-one -on -one discipleship, right? And so uh, Paul talks about women teaching women, right? older women teaching younger women, for example. Um, those are things where uh, where it should be a man and a man or a woman and a woman. I, I think ideally in a situation, uh, a, a man shouldn't even be counseling a woman if there is a better option of having a woman counsel the woman, uh, a godly woman being able to do that. And so uh, all, all those things come into play. I, I don't think that sharing the gospel is what Jim Neuheiser is talking about. I don't think that fulfills the heart of First Timothy two twelve, saying, "Oh, well, women shouldn't 
share the gospel with a man simply because somehow that shows that she has authority over the man or, or teaching the man. Um, so that that's where that's where I see that play in. Um, if you guys have thoughts or comments on that, go ahead and uh, and add that to the chat. Um, one of the things that Jim Neuheiser mentioned early on in the video was that the Bible is our sufficient textbook. Um, and so if you guys can interact with that, what do you think he means when he says that our Bible is our sufficient textbook for counseling? Does that mean that all of counseling comes from scripture and that we can't use anything outside of scripture? Um, what, what do you think he means when he says that? If you guys want to interact in the chat, that would be great. Um, so one way that I look at that is it's like, so for example, right, when we're talking about um, preaching, it's the public ministry of the word. Uh, biblical counseling, especially in the intensive one-on-one discipleship or pastoral care, is the personal ministry of the word. And so with preaching, um, we we add things into preaching sometimes. We use lighting, we use microphones, we use anecdotes. It, there's a lot that uh, supplements preaching, and yet we can take all those things away, and the and scripture is still the only sufficient tool for preaching. Uh, I, I think it's like that with biblical counseling. It can be helpful to to have a lot of other things to help um, make those points of scripture more explicit to help people think through scripture better. Um, you know, we mentioned homework assignments in the last, uh, the last session I taught on psychology, for example, where those things can be helpful for people. Um, similar to, uh, similar to bringing in data about, uh, people with post-traumatic stress or people with depression, all these other, all those other sources can help supplement but yet sufficiency means that without those things scripture alone is still capable of giving us the ability to counsel and speak into each other's lives um and so that's i think one way we can look at how data and other things can help supplement and even uh help us better make examples or teach scripture to somebody counsel somebody and yet not be uh, not take away from scripture's sufficiency. So Andrew says uh, that we don't necessarily need other sources. Peggy said the truth must come from scripture. We can apply it practically in our everyday life. I think those are, are great uh, thoughts as well. Um, just like in preaching, we don't pull other truths in and say, oh, this is, this is the same par as scripture. No, we're preaching scripture. We're speaking from scripture, yet we can add other things that will help make a point that comes from scripture. And that's the same, I think, with, uh, with biblical counseling. Um, Jim Neuheiser mentioned that the goal of counseling, biblical counseling is in conformity with God or is change in conformity with God's revealed will, not necessarily the selfish desires of the counselee. So Peggy said, uh, example, we are to be kind. What does that look like? and not look like in a certain situation. And Julie mentioned, when sharing the gospel with the opposite sex, I think it can often turn into a counseling type situation. I know of several situations where women sharing the gospel with a man has turned into a, and I'm assuming a counseling-like situation. Um, 
Right. And so uh, in, in those situations, we, we need to start differentiating the territory we're moving into, right? Is it becoming something that's unwise? Is it becoming a one-on-one uh, romantic relationship, romantic situation, or um, it becomes more personal where now you're, you're sitting there and you're sharing uh, a lot of time together and it becomes a situation where, hey, maybe we need to bring in the pastor or maybe we need to bring in another man who can walk with this person who is either not a believer and is open to it or is a brand new believer and needs another man to uh, walk with him and teach him and disciple him. Um, and so uh, definitely caution, definitely bring in other people into that conversation, right? And so a woman can share the gospel and then say, okay, well, now that I've shared the gospel with them and he seems to be responsive, let's bring in other people. This is great that he's responsive, but is he responsive simply because he's interested in this woman romantically? Or is he actually somebody who God is opening his heart to it and now we need to bring other people in and shepherd this individual um, and to be wise about that situation? So I, I think that that comes into play there. Um so in in the sense of uh, the goal of counseling, I think that that's a that's a bigger topic. I'm literally at the end of my uh, my time here, but I just wanted to mention that uh, last week when I was talking about psychology and biblical counseling, I talked about goals, uh, where the goal of biblical counseling is to transform somebody, um, not transform, but to walk with them as they try to image Jesus, uh, trying to help them be more like Jesus as opposed to psychology or psychotherapy. Um, and so one psychologist, as I was looking up different um, different things that psychologists say about psychotherapy, what they think the goal of counseling is. One person said, the goal of psychotherapy is to know yourself better, alleviate emotional pain or confusion, assist you in developing a more complete understanding of your psychological issues, establish more effective coping mechanisms, Foster a more accurate understanding of your past and what you want for your future. And so, for example, um, in one situation, uh, one study of 22 participants who said that they changed during therapy, um, they were unable to identify uh, what that psychological change was in terms of what, what was their definition of change. But they described their experience in terms of acceptance behavioral changes, new beginnings, and a return to positive emotional states. And so I think there is a fundamental difference between positive emotional states and um, behavioral changes and our heart changing to be more like Jesus, for us to be able to image Jesus better. Um, Last thing here as we close, Mark stated, in regards to sharing the gospel, my thought is that the Depth and breadth of the gospel becomes more than a transfer of information fairly quickly. Knowing that it can go in that direction quickly, depend on the situation, depending on the situation, it may be wise to consider approaching man to man, woman to woman where possible. Of course, where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. Julie stated, yes, I think that we need to be aware of that before we get romantically tied. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, obviously the gospel needs to be shared. Um, how, where the situation is um, and what what is wise is going to depend on the situation. Um, if you're if you're a missionary in the you know the Congo or wherever, and you're you're a woman and you're sharing the gospel with a man, I think that God's going to use that mightily. That that's necessary. That God's word 
be taught. Um, wisdom is the controlling factor for us in a lot of situations. Uh, it's not black and white, but rather a little gray in terms of um, should I involve somebody else? Can I involve somebody else? Is it wise to involve somebody else? And all those are good questions to consider on a case-to-case basis. So, all right, everyone. Well, sorry for the technical difficulties. Thank you.